0: Hi, this is Tris Hussey, and welcome to a special edition of Inside Trapeze and Vontis. Today, we're bringing you the keynote address from Dr. Karen Philbrick, Executive Director of the Manetta Transportation Institute, that she gave at Think Transit in Nashville, Tennessee on April the 3rd, 2023. This keynote was recorded live, and we've included her Q&A as well after her keynote address.
1: It's now a great honor to introduce you to your keynote speaker, Dr. Karen Philbrick. She has dedicated her life not only to promoting transit, but understanding how transit should work. Through the many studies and projects sponsored by the Mineta Institute, she works to make transit safer, equitable, and welcoming for all. And not just for riders, but public tra- As part of the Women in Transportation International Board, she works in supporting recruiting, retaining, and promoting women in public transport. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Silbert.
2: Well, I can finally say something I never thought I would. I've made it to Broadway. (laughs) Might only be the Broadway ballroom, but for someone who's tone deaf and lacks rhythm, I feel really excited about this. So nice to see you all today. As mentioned, I'm the executive director of the Mineta Transportation Institute at San Jose State University. For those of you who may not be familiar, we are a university transportation center that's focused on improving the mobility of people and goods, and we do this all through surface transportation research, technology transfer, education, and workforce development. At present, I lead three competitively selected multi-university consortia. The first is funded by the US Department of Transportation, and that's the Mineta Consortium for Transportation Mobility. We have partners at Howard University, which is a historically black college and university in Washington, DC. At Navajo Tech University, which is a small tribal college in rural New Mexico. And at San Jose State, we are minority serving in two categories. That's Hispanic serving and Asian American Pacific Islander. I tell you this because you might wonder how these partners fit together. They're very disparate. But that consortium was put together with an eye toward diversity. Diversity in geographic location, diversity in student population and area of expertise. We've got the bookends of congestion between DC and the Silicon Valley. We've got our rural partners. So we really have a natural testbed for doing research and workforce development activities. And this diversity is important because when we talk about building the transportation workforce of the future, we need to make sure we're creating an inclusive place that people want to be. The second consortium is the California State University Transportation Consortium. The CSU system is 23 universities strong and the largest four-year public university system in the nation. We have Senate Bill 1 funding in California, also known as the Road Repair and Accountability Act, which provides $2 million of funding annually to really focus once again on transportation research and workforce development. And then finally, we lead the Climate Change and Extreme Events Training and Research Program funded by the Federal Railroad Administration. At present, we have over 125 research projects in process, ranging from transit security issues to autonomous vehicles, workforce development initiatives that are proven most successful, cybersecurity, and beyond. We regularly deliver congressional testimony, keynote addresses, because part of the issue with academia is, I'm guessing that not many of you really want to read my 300-page report. Is there anybody in here that would like to do that? I doubt it. Oh, you would, okay, see me afterwards. So we make sure that we create research briefs, which are one page double-sided that gives you the highlights. We know that working professionals need to understand information in a way that has actionable intelligence and can be easily digested, whether you're an academic or a practitioner. Now, by way of background, please do me a favor. If you knew when you were small that you wanted to be in transportation, raise your hand. Two. Seriously, that's two people out of this entire packed room. And so the story I'm going to tell you now is related to workforce development and how I personally got into transportation. I'm a psychologist by training. I have a double master's PhD in various disciplines. And I started my doctoral program on my very first day, with the intention of becoming a counseling psychologist that saw patients. I walk into the room, my very first class, there's only six of us because it's very competitive. We're all scared. I was gonna say a bad word, but Tris over here told me that I'm the only person he ever had to bleep out on one of the podcasts. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to keep this thing under control, but I don't make promises with that. But uh, this professor walks in, he's kind of your classic guy. He's got papers trailing him behind him, his shirt's untucked, his shoes are untied. And he simply says, who wants to make extra money as a research assistant and who wants to travel? So I raise my hand and I say, I'm game. Two weeks later, I found myself at 3 a.m. in steel-toed boots at a yard office in Richmond, Virginia collecting data on CSX, freight, railroad engineers and conductors, looking at sleep-wake patterns, fatigue countermeasures and responses to grade crossing accidents and trespasser incidents really looking at that nexus of how psychology can influence any industry, particularly transportation. I had a great time. I loved learning the stories. I loved being in the yard office. This was many years ago now, so they were, they, were a little, they were a little seedy and a little greasy at that time, and that fits my personality pretty well. And so when I got back to Denver, I went to Denver General Hospital where I was seeing patients, patients who were mentally ill and chemically addicted. And that's a very difficult population. They can come to therapy for a year straight, make great strides and then never come back again. And you don't know what happened to them, very unsettling. And as I was sitting there doing therapy, it really was an epiphany because I heard the sound of a freight whistle. And in that moment, I knew I belonged in this industry because I could affect change on a much greater level than an in individual counseling. Changed the whole focus of my career and my scholastic endeavors. And now I've been in transportation for 20 years. And I think that story is very important because it demonstrates the power of serendipity and of saying yes to opportunity. If I wouldn't have raised my hand, I would not have the career I have today, which I absolutely am passionate about and I adore. So I think when we're talking about training the workforce of the future, we need to impress upon our younger generations that they need to be open to opportunity because you never know how happenstance and serendipity will influence the trajectory of your career and your life satisfaction. And so to that end, while we need to bridge the gaps in many areas, and I wanna talk about cybersecurity and changing travel patterns and mental health and workforce development and all of these other great topics, I only have 24 minutes and three seconds. So unless we wanna stay here all night, I'm only gonna focus in on a couple. The first being workforce development because Chair Gail mentioned that, our opening comments mentioned that, and we also heard that in the video. One of the greatest challenges, clearly one of the greatest challenges facing our industry today is the lack of a qualified workforce. You've probably all heard the stories about how CEOs of smaller agencies are out driving the bus or taking care of other operational tasks because they don't have that workforce there. Previously, prior to the pandemic, the US Departments of Transportation, Labor and Education created a report that quantified the workforce shortage. At that time, we needed to fill 417,000 jobs on an annual basis. And that was just to keep up with retirement, voluntary separations, a burgeoning population, and new technology. And of course, that landscape has changed and we need to recruit even more people now because we see people leaving the industry. How do we do that? How do we create a space that people want to be in? How do we get them excited about this? Obviously, only two people in this room thought this was a really great career to enter. And so you've probably realized that when you're talking to people who are not in our industry, and particularly younger people, they're at a loss to name careers in transportation. Maybe bus driver, train operator, airline pilot, or ship captain. But beyond that, they don't see the world of possibilities. There's a place for a psychologist, a graphic designer, a journalist, Anything you're interested in, there is a place in transportation, and we need to start telling that story, because from the front lines to the C-suite, we are entering crisis mode. So one of the best untapped markets when we talk about transportation is the workforce of women. Currently, only 15% of the transportation workforce are women. Now, we see discrepancies within industry. When you're talking freight, it's closer to 1%. When you're talking transit, we're doing a pretty good job and we're closer to 30%. But we need to be showing what's possible in this industry. We need to be social role models. If you can't see it, you can't be it. We need to be into classrooms, talking with very young kids about the possibilities. Because if we start when kids are in college or already in the workforce, we're too late. People have already gone a different direction. So it's incumbent upon us to start going into the elementary schools and to that end, for example, at the Institute, we've developed curriculum on sustainability, on high-speed rail and intercity passenger rail and other hot topics at age-appropriate levels from kindergartens through sixth grade with the activities changing. So kindergartens might color, sixth graders don't really wanna do that, so we adapt and pivot. But that gets them thinking about this field and learning about the well-paying careers that are possible. Beyond that, we're in the middle schools delivering the Garrett Morgan Sustainable Transportation Competition. For those of you who do not know who Garrett Morgan was, he was the son of enslaved parents with only an early childhood education, went on to become a trailblazing inventor, best known for the modern three-way traffic signal, although he also patented the gas mask in the sewing machine. We put mentors and it's cool, huh? I heard a wow, yay, enthusiasm works, if you like what I'm saying. Um, we put mentors into the classroom so these students can ask questions and learn about industry and they develop sustainable projects that are then presented with a panel of judges. We do this in partnership with ASHTO as well as APTA and the US Department of Transportation is always active. In fact, prior to the current administration, every city and secretary of transportation would address our students. That's how important DOT thinks this topic is. And then beyond that, in high school, we have the Summer Transportation Institute, which is a three week non-residential program on the campus of San Jose State University, which incidentally, San Jose State University caters to a first generation population. So those students who don't have anybody in their nuclear extended family who's gone to college, maybe don't understand that there's a place for them in college if that's the path they wanna take. By the way, San Jose State University, when we talk about bridging gaps, Higher education is often thought unattainable to lower socioeconomic status people. At San Jose State, we are known as the number one most transformative university in the nation. Not Harvard, not Stanford, San Jose State, right? How's that happen? Three objective criteria. Yay, yes! That's based on loan repayment, graduation rates, and job retention. And I think we can all agree that those are three very worthy criteria by which to be judged. Also, just this year, we were rated one of the top 10 most affordable colleges in the nation. Our tuition is less than $8,000 a year, and through the institute, for those students who might want to join the transportation ranks, we provided over a million dollars in scholarships over the last two decades. So doing our job there and bridging that gap to help students reach that higher level of education. But not everybody is destined for a four year university. So when we do this summer transportation institute, these kids get accepted free of charge. We win grants to do this and they take a condensed college level course on environmental science in a three week period of time. But for any of you who might be parents out there, you can't just lecture at kids. You gotta make sure that they're involved and that they're doing project-based learning and other activities. So we have guest speakers come in, they get to fly drones, they get to see neuro-robotic technology, they go on field trips, they go to VTA to learn from frontline mechanics, They go to the construction in the Central Valley to see the high speed rail development and learn from engineers. They go to the airport to learn from baggage handlers. They learn from the CEOs. So it's a very rich experience that shows the diverse opportunities. And then of course, beyond that, we have graduate education. But all of these opportunities combined will help us bridge that gap of the shortage in the workforce so that we can make sure that we continue to deliver these critical services and keep our nation moving. As you probably know, transportation is one of our nation's 16 critical infrastructures that if harmed by man-made or natural disaster would seriously impact our nation's safety, security, and economic viability. And I don't think people get, they take transportation for granted. They're not thinking about the role it plays in our economy and in our lives, but transportation touches all of us whether it's through the food we consume and how we got that, the devices we receive to remain connected, or how we go from point A to point B. Even if you're off the grid, you're using some active form of transportation, whether it's bicycling, walking, or rolling. So it truly does crowd across every sector and affect all of our lives. And I think that's part of what makes it very, very exciting. And when we go back to that workforce development topic, particularly with the focus on women in the industry, no offense to the men, I just want to point out a few statistics because I am your academic, so I love my data, it makes me weak in the knees. I love research, I love all of that. And what's unique about being an academic is I come to you, I have money. We win it through grants, I'm not selling you anything. I'm not asking you for money, I'm asking you for ideas. What do you think are the biggest issues facing our industry? And what research needs to be done so that we have objective data to combat those issues? So I mean what I'm about to say. If any of you have burning needs that are research related, I absolutely invite you to talk with me about that because on an annual basis, we release a competitive request for proposals to get that research under contract so that we can inform the industry moving forward. True, true, true offer there. The research shows that for companies that have women in leadership positions, whether that's in the C-suite, on executive committees, or on boards, they have a higher return on investment. They have a higher return on investment, sometimes up to 47%, which is pretty remarkable. Why? Women have different coping strategies, different conflict resolution techniques, different communication levels. And what we also know from the literature is that when you're trying to build and sustain a workforce, having social support is incredibly important and powerful. In fact, one of the greatest predictors of workforce satisfaction, reduced absenteeism and reduced turnover is the level of supervisory support that an employee feels. Let me be clear, leaders are not born. Leaders can be made. So any of these techniques can be learned if you're willing to be open and to look at how you relate to the world and how you relate to people. And to that end, when we talk about bridging the gap and bringing more women into the workforce and more people in general, how are we gonna do that? There is some low-hanging fruit that we could easily implement. It's what I like to call actionable intelligence, which I mentioned a few minutes ago. One of the easiest things to do is to really review all of your job descriptions and to eliminate any language that's unnecessary and a disincentive for application. So for example, how many job descriptions say you need to be able to lift 40 pounds? Is that ever really gonna happen? Not likely. So remove that because that's a barrier to some people applying. Make sure that you use gender inclusive language. Don't always refer to the male pronoun. Words matter, words create an expectation, they create a feeling and they promote action. So let me give you an example when we talk about gender inclusivity. Who's familiar with the different terms female and woman and what they mean? Okay, when we talk about females, we're talking about biological sex. When we talk about women, we're talking about the whole person. The phrase woman encompasses people who are transgender, who are gender questioning and all it's an all-inclusive term. So just simply changing out the word female to women creates a safe space and a sense of belonging for those who might identify differently than the majority of us. When you think about interviewing, don't have an interview panel that's all white males because people of color, women, when they walk in and they see that, they don't see their faces reflected back. They don't see a space for them. And people of different backgrounds, whether it's religious orientation, gender expression, uh, race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status, they relate to information, time, and space differently based on a lifetime of experience. So diverse gender panels, gender-inclusive language, the removal of barriers, and then once we get people into the industry, how do we keep them, how do we retain them? We give them opportunities for training, for learning, and for advancement. We become mentors, which is always very important. Mentorships helps people develop. But what's more critically important is becoming a champion. When you're a champion, you're not just telling somebody what they should do. You're creating opportunities. One of the classic examples of this construct is a mentor tells somebody how to play golf. Oh, you do this, you give them some tutorials, you give them some videos to watch. A champion finds a foursome where somebody is hiring and brings that person onto the golf course and teaches them and actively becomes involved. And sometimes we don't understand that distinction very well. And to that end, sometimes the concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion themselves are misunderstood. And people don't feel safe exposing their their, lack of understanding because they don't wanna look sophomore or don't wanna look like they're up with the times. So I like to break it down to a very basic level. When we talk about diversity, we're talking about having a plurality of voices around the table. People from those different reference groups I just mentioned. That is not inclusivity, that's diversity. When we talk about inclusivity, we're saying that every person around that table has an equal voice and an equal chance to impact outcome. And when we talk about equity, it's very different from the term equitable. Equitable is that we all get the same thing. Equity is we get the resources we need to create a level playing field. We need to be teaching these types of topics within our workforce. We need to broaden that perspective and training is a great way to do that. And then when we think about wanting to shore up the pipeline, we need to think about what are the disincentives for participation? Paul, this is not directed at you, but I gotta say something. A frickin' Monday morning meeting that requires Sunday travel when you have a young family is really difficult. So is there a way when we're looking at these meetings and these requirements that we could subtly adjust it to one day later so that parents of school aged children who cannot care for themselves aren't forced to make a decision or go through heroic efforts to make it happen? Can we implement childcare? To reduce those barriers, is that safe and can we do so? And we need to explore these types of opportunities. I'm gonna pivot now because I talked earlier about supervisor support related to job satisfaction and retention, but I wanna talk now for a moment about mental health. In 2021, you might all remember that CEO of MARTA, Jeff Parker, committed suicide on his own system. This rocked our industry, it rocked me personally, and it highlighted the mental health crisis that we are facing in our country, in our states, and in our workforce ranks. And particularly in transportation, which often has a very machismo sort of culture, it's not safe to talk about when we're struggling. And when we can't talk about when we're struggling, we can't get the social support that we need. And social support is one of the greatest predictors of dealing with stress in an efficient way that's not maladaptive. You never know the struggles someone has. You can never underestimate the power of a kind word to change someone's day because you don't know what's happening in the background. Here we saw Jeff Parker, a family man, a man of his church, a man of the community, incredibly well-respected, incredibly kind, just a beautiful human being, nobody knew, not even his wife, who's a psychiatric nurse specialized on suicide in adolescence, saw the signs or the warning signs. There was no, there was no, he wasn't embezzling money, there was no there there. He was just struggling and he saw no way out. And when he took his life and he did it on his own system, I ask you to pause and think about the impact to the operators. Oftentimes, an operator is powerless to stop, which means they are held hostage to watch that human carnage, that debris, that death happen. What does that do to them? How does that impact their mental health, their physical health, and their emotional well-being? These are things we need to think about, particularly when we look at grade crossing accidents and trespasser incidents in our industry. Now, they're much higher on the freight side, but they're also happening in transit, Now, to be very clear, transit remains the safest mode of transportation in our nation. Last year, we saw almost 43,000 people killed on our freeways. That's 133% higher than in transit, where we only saw 322 people lose their lives. The majority of those were through trespassing and suicidal behavior. So, we have a very safe system, but all of this impacts people's health and well-being, and we need to make it okay for people to talk about how they're feeling. And when we talk about supervisor support, we need to focus on communication. Too many people lack intentionality. Think about a conversation you've had recently. Are you truly listening? Are you listening with intention? Are you communicating with meaning? Are you paraphrasing what you heard so that person feels valued, respected, and understood? Or are you simply waiting for their lips to stop moving while you rehearse what you're gonna say next? I think it's a crisis there in our communications and our families and in our workplaces that people don't listen well. And when you don't listen well, people feel devalued. And that's also related to people leaving the workforce. Also, mental health is highly correlated with how you sleep. If we're gonna be good leaders and we're gonna be good colleagues, good spouses, good family members, and good friends, we need to take care of the whole person. We need to make sure that we're prioritizing our health so we can lead the industry well. And so one in three adults don't actually get the sleep that they need to be fully functional and cognitively rich. The average person between 18 and 60 years old needs between seven and nine hours of sleep a night. Now you'll hear some people, some colleagues say, oh, I only need three hours a night, that's all I need. Bullshit. If you look at reaction time and the ability to process simple mathematics, these are deeply impacted by lack of sleep and fatigue. And there are some very simple things that we can do called fatigue countermeasures to help us sleep better. So for example, think about your sleeping environment. Do you have an 80 pound dog in bed with you? Do you have a small dog laying on your head? What's the situation there? Do you have white noise to drown out any noises that are happening in the background? Do you have your room too hot? Should be closer to like 65, 68 when you sleep. Do you have blackout curtains to prevent the sun or other forms of light coming in? Do you have a partner who might have an undiagnosed sleep disorder such as sleep apnea? Someone who's <coughs> snoring and waking themselves up like that, which by the way We have a preponderance of that sleep disorder in the transportation industry specifically. In large part, it is correlated with neck size, which can be correlated with weight. Um, We do know that if that's left untreated, it leads to higher rates of mortality, early death, higher divorce rates, lower cognitive processing, more maladaptive emotional responses, just like we see when people are not taking transit and they're stuck in traffic. If you take transit, It's correlated with better health, less pain, better joint movement, less obesity, better cardiovascular health, lower diabetic rates. And what we see is where transit is proliferating or coming into a city, it generates additional physical activity between eight and 33 minutes depending on the location. As I've mentioned previously, scientific literature shows that the majority of people are not willing to walk more than a quarter to a half mile to reach a transit system. So if you can get into that sweet spot and you can get people out of their cars and onto transit, you're improving health and well-being because for every minute that people are stuck in traffic, it's correlated with reduced job and life satisfaction In fact, when we talk about travel patterns, and don't worry, I see I only have three and a half minutes. I'm I'm watching, Paul. When we talk about changing traffic patterns, what we saw, and I know we've got some pandemic fatigue in talking about these issues, but at the height, we saw ridership erode. Absolutely plummet, except for those non-choice riders who were in essential services, who did not have the privilege of working from home. Now, according to the American Public Transportation Association, ridership has regained up to 70% of pre-pandemic levels, but that varies significantly by location. So let me bring it back closer to the Silicon Valley. BART, the Bay Area Rapid Transit District, which pre-pandemic was the fifth busiest passenger rail system in the nation, has only recovered 30% ridership. An article was released just two days ago that showed that congestion on our Bay Area freeways is back up to pre-pandemic levels, and we just won an award. This is not a good award. We're the 15th most congested region in the world, not the nation, but the world. Why? We are primarily a white collar tech-related workforce with one of the lowest return to work rates in the nation So while we don't see that bimodal distribution of traffic, we're just seeing traffic at all times now because people working from home might go to the gym in the middle of the day, might go shopping at different hours. They don't have to reserve it for before or after work. So we need to tell a different story about the power of transit to bridge the gap in the low ridership. We need choice riders to see the possibilities, the health benefits, how they can save time that they could dedicate to reading a novel, listening to music, doing mindful meditation, or whatever it is that brings them joy. So when we talk about all of these things, I think we need to look at bridging the gap on a micro level. What steps do we need to take as humans, as people, to reach our macro vision of a seamless, integrated transit system that fits the needs of all riders across the nation? Okay, that's, that's my time, but I would love some questions because I have 15 minutes.
0: Thank you, Karen. Yes. So, uh, Karen would like to take some questions. I've got the mic over here. So, if you'd like to have a question, kind of wander your way over. But to start out, Karen, when we talked for yes. Destination Think Transit, you talked about changing the narrative of public transit to get more people on board, so that people saw people like them, yes. more white collar workers, to use transit to have better health, to reduce traffic, reduce stress. What do you think? How can we do that? What is the narrative? How can we portray that for people?
2: I think social modeling is incredibly important in all endeavors. So, getting people who are respected and who appeal to a broad range of individuals so, maybe a sports professional, maybe an actor, maybe somebody who's in a position of power in the C suite get them onto transit so people start seeing that people who are not just our blue-collar workers in essential jobs are also taking that as a mobility choice. But I think in order to achieve that, we also need to change the narrative around safety and harassment, right? You probably all remember the devastating stories on the SEPTA system when a woman was actually raped on a train and a second woman raped at a station. That creates a sense of alarm rightfully so, and fear. And when you combine that with the media, who loves to fearmonger and to really ramp up these stories, it's creating a feeling of lacking safety. And that is also preventing people from getting on the system. So making sure we change that narrative and that we fight those stories of harassment and unsafe behaviors. We can do several things too that we can implement. Better lighting, signs in multilingual um, various languages so people understand a see something, say something campaign, a harassment initiative, training for our operators, having intermittent security patrol the systems. What we know from behavioral change are the strategies of classical and operant conditioning. You might all remember this from your college days. When we talk about um, operant conditioning, we are talking about changing behaviors, of course, but one of the best things to do is to use reinforcement. And if you want a behavior to last, rather than become extinguished, intermittent reinforcement is best. Why am I saying all this? It relates to safety in the sense that you don't want to have security patrolling the system at the same exact time on the same route every day, because people can anticipate that and work around it. You want it on an intermittent schedule so people can identify how or where it's gonna happen. So Tris, I think we need to change the narrative on who our riders are, we need to improve the perception of safety, and we need to reach out to communities in various languages so they see what's possible.
0: That's fantastic. Are there any questions? I have one more, unless anyone has any questions. So,
2: yeah. oh, yay. Oh, wait. There's a question right here, Tris.
0: Okay, fantastic. Hey, thank you,
1: Karen, great, uh, great presentation. Um, apparently 10,000 people every day turn 65 in, in the US, and a, a lot of sectors are suffering from aging workforce leaving the sector and not being able to replenish with with, with younger people. Uh, I'm interested if you're seeing that dynamic in in transit and how that sort of age profile is, you you think is is working in the the transit
2: space. Great question and you're spot on. It's a devastating blow to the transit industry as well. Over 53% of the current workforce is eligible for retirement. Now that doesn't mean that they're walking out the doors, but that means that they can walk out the doors if they want to. And so we need to fill those ranks and part of addressing that issue is through those workforce development programs I mentioned at the beginning. Making sure we're getting into that K through 12 sector and talking about the possibilities. But that aging workforce called by FTA administrator Nuria Fernandez, the grain tsunami is real and we're having to combat that every single day. So it's, it's, it's across industries but it's particularly acute within transportation and transit specifically. Absolutely. Dave Harris, don't you have a question? Right in front, right here.
3: <laughs> Thanks, Karen. You're welcome. <laughs> um, you know, one of my uh, observations is there's sort of these cascading effects between equity, ridership, uh, workforce, um, right? We, the best way to achieve environmental change and climate change is for teleworking, right? But the people who telework are pretty much white collar jobs, um, which makes ridership go down, but it leads to environmental change because people aren't making the trip, right? You put every type of um, strategy there is to lower carbon and you put them into a bucket and it doesn't equal people not making the trip. And so, but you have equity, ridership, funding, the way Congress looks, hey, what's your ridership? During um, during the pandemic, they didn't seem to mind that only choice riders were taking transit, but now that's starting to change. And so I think, um, what do you think about? Performance measures needing to change. Um, you know, the, the big metric is always like ridership, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, trapeze and them, that you know, they they look at all sorts of measures other than than ridership. So accessibility, mobility, I think those those need to be the types of measures that um, are emphasized rather than just pure ridership. Okay, great. And I think Congress needs to get that message. So any observations on on sort of the observations I have in the field, um, dealing with a commuter rail and dealing with a bus system, uh, any, any observations there?
2: Well, besides to say ditto to what you said, there's not a whole lot more to offer, but you're exactly right. We can't keep using the same performance metrics to gauge success. We need to look more at the essential service that we are providing versus the ridership trends, because if we're just looking at ridership, we are denying the public good that we are offering. We're not necessarily, unless you have congestion pricing, making people pay to drive their cars beyond gas, right? But we make people pay for transit. So some of the things we can also look at if we, not that I'm saying we need to focus on ridership trends, but if we are trying to beef those up, of course there's a conversation around fareless transit and fare capping to make sure that it's more equitable and it's reducing socioeconomic barriers to using the system. But we do need to tell, that's back to what I was saying earlier, that we need to tell a better story. A better story about what we're doing, about what is possible, and that the service that we're delivering. And so we need need more meetings with our members of Congress, Dave, because they are just out there doing the job, right? (laughs) That's a joke, by the way. (laughs)
0: Okay. I think I saw one question
4: over here. Here and here. Uh, Good morning. First of all, thank you for coming. Uh, we really appreciate uh, the information and, and the knowledge that you're passing on. Um, so I'm Silas Jones. Um, I'm Chief Transportation Supervisor for uh, Delaware Transit's Paratransit Department. Um, and something that read, really sh- struck a nerve for me of what you were speaking about is the uh, mental aspect of the job. And as we all know, the, the pandemic uh, took a really heavy toll on everybody's uh, you know, mental capacity. Um, and one of the challenges that I've experienced is trying to figure out the balance of trying to keep your operators encouraged to continue working. Um, it's, it's been a very strong challenge, you know, with operators coming into the office, literally in tears because of mm. the workload, you know, drastically increasing, but the staffing not, you know, following suit. Um, so what would you suggest as to a tactic uh, you know, to keep your staff encouraged, to continue to fight, and to be patient you know, as we continue to work uh, to can, you know, bring in more staff.
2: Mm-hmm. That's a great point, and one statistic before I answer that. On an annual basis, depression causes our nation $211 billion. That's related to lost worker productivity and treatment services and the cost of those. But what we also know, particularly within transportation, is that 57% of moderate and 40% of severely depressed people do not seek treatment. Maybe it's due to the lack of confidence in, the, in the, the management labor piece. Maybe they don't feel like their information will be confidential, but we need to look at what those barriers are to receiving treatment. And when you're talking about keeping people's motivation up and dealing with that emotion, it hurts. It hurts to see, it hurts to witness, and it hurts to understand that people are experiencing that. And so there's some research that's being funded right now through TCRP. It's TCRP panel F-29, which is looking at transit, worker, health, and well-being. And so we're going out and we're doing, I'm the chair of that panel, I'm not the active researcher, but we're going out and we're doing frontline survey data collection. Uh, We've got the full backing of the unions, so we make sure that the response rate is good. We are going to vary this by postal code and state. We're not gonna drill down so that we know what system people are referring to, but we need to start understanding through data collection the extent of the problem, and then looking at effective countermeasures and best practices for addressing those issues. The World Health Organization has a worker wellness toolkit, and so does the CDC, and so there are some of those global opportunities, but there are some focused on transit specifically. So I think bringing to light that that conversations are confidential, creating the opportunity for training or education on some of those topics, which could be self-directed through kind of an online experience, or through the mere availability of pamphlets, suggesting what services are available can be effective. And then of course, what we see, and I know I've now said this twice, through the scientific literature is that active coping strategies and social support help alleviate or ameliorate those distressing symptoms. So social support can be achieved through your colleagues, your family, clergy if you're religious, rotary if you're focused on community service, any of those active engagements. And we also know that people who have rich social lives and maintain personal relationships, they live longer, and they live happier. So creating space and opportunity for that is important. And when we talk about coping strategies, when I say the word active, what I mean specifically by that is, okay, let me give an example first. When I wake up at 4 a.m., I am weak. My defenses are down, my demons are in full effect, and I am a loser on every level. I'm a terrible mother, I'm a bad wife, I'm a naughty kid, I'm not a good colleague because I feel so depleted. By 8 a.m., I'm on top of the world, and I'm like, everything is fantastic. So what I do in those wee morning hours, I use active coping strategies, so thought-stopping techniques. That just means stop and change the narrative, change the cognitive experience of what you're you're feeling and what you're saying to yourself. One of the greatest lessons I can leave you with today is your brain believes what you tell it. Be very careful of the narrative you're weaving. So for example, I was nervous today but I said no, I'm not nervous, I'm excited because those use the same neural pathways in the brain and if I tell myself I'm nervous, I'm gonna get up here and I'm gonna flop. Instead I say I'm excited because these are new friends, these are new colleagues, they don't know what I'm gonna say and frankly nobody knows our, industry, our particular point of expertise better than we do and so really making sure that you're using positive self-talk can be exceptionally effective, same with cognitive behavioral techniques. So some people even do this when they need to stop a maladaptive train of thought, stop, and replace it with something better. And also, it can be feelings can be correlated with smoking, with drinking, with all of these other physical activities. And so when we wanna change behavior, we need to focus on the ABCs, the antecedents, the behavior, and the consequence. Let me use the example of smoking. Smoking oftentimes makes people feel like, oh, they shouldn't, they're killing themselves. This produces something called cognitive dissonance, which is when your actions do not match your thoughts and produces a state of tension. So people either change their actions or they change how they think about it so that they feel comfortable. Like the smoker may say, oh, this just relaxes me. It makes me calm down. This is why I do it, blah, 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 blah. And then if you really want to be effective at changing behavior, you change the antecedent. What comes right before you do the behavior in question? Do you smoke after every meal? After every difficult experience? What do you do in its place? You must replace that activity to be successful, whether that's taking a walk, chewing gum, or doing something that works for you. So I think we need to take into account, that's a very long, convoluted answer, but I think social support and coping strategies and training materials would be my three main takeaways for bridging that gap.
4: Hi, I'm Monica Brody and I'm with Memphis Area Transit and I am a academia geek. And um, I listened to you talk about diversity, equity and inclusion. One of my biggest concerns is that when people get of a certain age, ageism plays into uh, play when it comes to the workforce. Uh, A lot of our workers in transit do not necessarily have the technological skills to be able to do some of the things that you spoke about. My question is, how can you include those individuals who may be uh, mechanics or drivers into those think tanks with those younger generations and pair those people with... um, Uh, coming up with ideas on how to improve our transit system, because who's the best person to know about what's taking place than the people who are actually on the ground?
2: I think that last point is critically important. You're right, people who are on the ground can be leaders in their own space because they see what's happening. People who are 30 and below, they demand the DE&I principles. People who are older are adjusting to those concepts. So I think that training is always important, opening that opportunity for a safe conversation and realizing that as we age, we do not become less smart or less capable. We just take longer to recall information It's called crystallized versus fluid intelligence. So so changing how we think about that older generation is also very important because ageism is alive and well. But making sure that you expand the opportunities so that even if people are in the front line or they're in their 60s or their 70s, they have the equal opportunity to learn along with their younger peers. Also, when we're talking about culture, people learn by example. Like the old adages, children learn by example. The problem is they can't tell a good one from a bad one. And that comes back to that social modeling piece. Making sure that people who have been on the front lines for a very long time are correctly doing their jobs, correctly lifting instead of doing something that could hurt them physically because people are gonna watch them and emulate them. But changing the narrative about how people age and realizing they are still very imperative to the workforce and have lots to contribute is a first step in that. And let's talk afterwards, because I know I'm limited on time, but you made me swoon when you said you are an academic geek, or maybe I put that word in there. I relate to you.
5: Hi, my name is Melissa Chapman, and I work at Mountain Metro Transit in Colorado
4: Springs. So in 2010, I started as a driver, oh. um, and I was a single mom at the time, and I almost had to quit because of the schedule. Mm-hmm. So how do we support, you know, we talk about uplifting women, uplifting minorities. How do we support these groups, where does the money come from? Like how do we do it? How do we implement a daycare program? I think that would be great. We've lost, like in Colorado Springs, we don't have a driver shortage right now. And we we don't have, well, we do have a driver shortage, but um, so we have reduced routes. But in order to bring them back, um, we have single moms that have quit in the first two or three weeks of training because they realize what the extra board is, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. what do we
2: do and how do we implement those programs to support them and where does the money come from? That's a great question without a firm answer right now, but there are pilot tests being done and certain transit agencies looking at implementing daycare on site. So it removes that barrier to parents who can't, if they're showing up at work at 3 a.m., who are they gonna drop their child off to that early in the morning, and what is the cost? And is that preventing them from coming and staying in the workforce? So I'm sorry, but I don't have a specific answer for you now, but I assure you that pilot tests are happening and that's something that the TCRP panel is looking at very closely but that is a classic example of why women are leaving the workforce. Absolutely. I think it's also important to hold focus groups. I think that there's a place for for data that's both um, qualitative and quantitative, and hearing stories like your own about how you you worked around that, what were some of the techniques that you developed are very important to the story about how we combat some of those really maladaptive issues. But I look forward to promoting the results of that pilot test on daycare. I think that's got a real opportunity to influence the future? That's an unsatisfactory answer, but it's the best I've got right now.
0: Finally get my turn. Anyway, I'm Alan Jacobson, of Fresno Area Express, and I've been in operations for over 25 years. Um, one of the biggest challenges we have as an industry is our labor force, the rising costs of labor, absenteeism, and um, accidents and everything else involved with that labor force. Shouldn't we as an industry be more f- exploring like autonomous vehicles and with AI and everything else, um, making a safer transportation, reducing labor costs by going to that. Our, our already early studies have shown that most autonomous vehicles are far safer than those that are uh, operator uh, or driven by an operator.
2: Uh, first of all, go dogs. My first alma mater is Fresno State, so I love Fresno. Um, the second is there's a hell of a lot of research being done in that space and the best statistic is they think autonomous vehicles will reduce accidents by 94 percent because the majority are caused by human error now I think your labor unions might be a little bit at odds with what you're saying about autonomy but but it may be maybe one of the one of the tools in the toolkit of addressing that workforce shortage right not only creating safer passage but filling those needs. And so there's a lot of research happening on that right now. As you might know, there are a couple places in Arizona where you can fully call up an autonomous taxi at present without a human driver in it. Chandler, Arizona was the first part and they were recently released in Phoenix. There are some fully autonomous buses that are operating on VTA kind of properties in in Silicon Valley related to um, our veterans and being on a hospital site, so it's a a closed system. But there is a lot of data that's being worked on, but the levels of autonomy are gonna take time to reach that full implementation piece, 10, 15 years. And then on top of that, you have to think about user acceptance. How somebody who's um, a Gen Zer responds to autonomy is gonna be very different than how somebody who's a traditionalist, like my mom and dad will. They're not gonna feel comfortable getting into a bus with no driver. That's just not part of their vernacular. So we need to make sure that we're looking at user acceptance, how to increase those rates, while at the same time, looking at how we would retrain the existing workforce if full autonomy was introduced so that they still have income producing activities and the unions are happy and everybody's happy and we have a seamless transit system. But yes, autonomy is, it's a good thing. 94% reduction in accident rates.
5: Good morning. My name is David Harris. I'm operations supervisor here at WeGo Public Transit. Uh, I recently proposed to our direct, our uh, chief di- safety officer, about a bounce back program because we realize when I say bounce back it's for those operators that have been separated from employment with our particular agencies. We want to increase our trans. We want to increase our services. We want to increase everything. But we, what we're dealing with more often than not is operator retention. So the bounce back program that I proposed is uh, what do we do for those operators who are dealing with, we know that attendance and substance abuse, they kind of coexist on any given day. It's not always that people are dealing with uh, child care and other things that are going on there, uh, those uh, acquaintances that they deal with on a day-to-day basis, but how do we instead of exiling the people who've been separated from companies, give them the opportunity to get their lives back together or work with them because we have people, as a matter of fact, I can uh, self-disclose having had a history of dealing with those things, losing jobs, the inability to go to my job, and we need people to give them grassroot experience to talk about what they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis before an accident before uh, a random finding out that they're dealing with these different substance abuse issues. um, How does that look? And it's no better person to me to pose that to than someone who deals with psychology like yourself, is how would that, how do we get something of that nature started?
2: Well, I think that's a loaded question. Um, I think the first thing would be getting a certificate of confidentiality from the National Institute of Health. It protects any information from being subpoenaed into a court of law and it creates a barrier that allows people to feel safer and to have more honest conversations. Because talking about substance abuse is a very scary thing for a lot of people who feel like they will lose their job or be thought of poorly. You said grassroots effort. You said yourself that you've struggled with some of these issues. Opening that conversation in a safe space and allowing others to be transparent about their experience is a very good first step. Making sure that there's safeguards in place so people will not be um, fired, terminated, whatever word you wanna use, or somehow penalized for what they've done is very important. That's a critical first step in allowing people to start an open conversation. When you talk about the aging workforce and, and bringing people back, certainly you've heard of signing bonuses and retention bonuses those have been proven to be effective. Um, Randy Clark, before he joined uh, Washington DC's Metro, he instituted something in Texas where he had people, this this sounds quite interesting, but it was effective. He had his drivers tailored. Their, Their outfits were tailored so that the fabric was more breathable, it was more comfortable. people felt good in their work attire and in staying in it throughout the day. So there's some little small steps we can take along the way that make a great impact. I'm gonna get kicked off the stage. Seriously, I'm 11 minutes over, so if you wanna chat more about this afterwards, I'm sitting right in front. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Philbrook. What a great talk. I think we all took away a lot for the next three days here to talk about our staff recruiting, retention, training, and thank you all for the great questions and participation. I was already excited about the next three days and getting into all these conversations with you, and I would say I'm pumped to get into it.
0: Thank you for listening to this special edition of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Now stay tuned. We'll have more keynotes that were recorded live at Think Transit in future episodes.